The following audio content was recorded at University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit upc.org. I'm Janie, or Jane, as Thomas likes to call me, and a couple of other people, um, which is fine. You can call me whatever you want. I'll answer to those. I'll answer to Jamie. Most people call me that, actually. They think that's what my name is. There's an N in there. I'm really excited to be here tonight. Um, I'm one of the people on staff, and um, I'm excited that you guys are here, too. So I get to work with Ryan, and a few things about me. I don't have any kids, so I don't can't show you pictures of cute redheads like Ryan can. When you're single, you're like, what do you show when you can't show pictures of your kids? Yourself sleeping in? I don't know. That's about all I have to offer, right? <laughs> but I love kids, and the great thing about about my position is that I get to enjoy like Ryan's kids um, and have fun with them and then they go home and he's the one who has to, he and Julie are the ones that have to, you know, get up with them in the middle of the night. But a little bit about me, I went to the University of Washington. Um, yeah, like some of you, some people here, did you guys go to UW? Um, and yeah, so I went, with, I went with Ryan and I went to the inn and I would sit back there every week. So Ryan and I were here at the same time. He didn't really talk to me because he's cute or uh, anyways, um, and I've been a lifelong Husky fan like Ryan has. I think I'm the only one who's watched the Huskies win a Rose Bowl in Pasadena, um, which is a very exciting moment in my life. Um, and I like sports in general, so um, here's a picture of me this summer fulfilling a lifelong dream. I got to go to the Olympics in London, which is awesome. So I went with my friend Becky. She's my sports-going friend, and it's like a reflex. We're at a sporting event. She's like, dubs up automatically. <laughs> but there are two Husky. We were watching women's volleyball, and there are two Huskies on the team, so that was really exciting. Um, and how else do you get to know people? What's another way to get to know people? I think another way is you get to know their pet peeves, right? What are the things that drive them crazy? So here's a few of mine. First one, animals dress as humans. I don't like it when animals have clothes on. That's just weird. <laughs> also, the misuse of quotation marks. This is really, this is a huge pet peeve of mine, and a lot of people might not be aware of it, but there are two reasons to put quotes around things, right? When you're quoting someone, and when you're trying to say that what's inside the quote is, like, ironic. You're trying to say what the opposite of the word that's inside the quote marks. Um, well, I have actually a video clip to kind of explain what this looks like, this misuse of quote marks. Um, Let's put aside the fact that you accidentally picked up my grandmother's ring and you accidentally proposed to Rachel. Why can't I just stop you right there for a second? When people do this, I don't really know what that means. <laughs> you saying? And I can even understand that you couldn't tell Rachel. But why couldn't you tell me? Huh? You had all day to and you didn't. I know, I should have. I'm sorry. <laughs> Not using it right, Joe. So that's an example. When do you use them? If you pay attention, people use quotation marks all over the place. They use it on signs. I think, like, like signs for businesses and stuff. I think they, they mean it as an exclamation point. But it's, like, ironic, right? Probably the best coffee in town. Breakfast sausage. I don't want to know what's in that sausage. Or we sell boxes, okay? Thank God. That's great. I don't really know who they're thanking. This one on the bottom is my favorite. It's a poem to a mother-in-law. 
and it says, who raised such a loving son. <laughs> so why am I talking about quotations? Because it's important. How do, you, how do you quote people? Quoting is really important, and if you pay attention, you'll notice signs everywhere where they're like, the produce is fresh, and you're like, I don't know if I want to eat that. That's just weird. <laughs> We're actually quoting, we're, we're looking at a quote that one of the most famous quotes that Jesus did. Jesus actually quoted often, and I think it's really important for us to know that he is quoting something. We're in our third end of the quarter, and you know that we have been in a series looking at God's love in Scripture and how we experience it in life. God's love. In the past two weeks, Ryan got us started by looking at the greatest commandment. Right? Jesus quoting and talking about God's love. But what we're, what we've talked about so far is what precedes the greatest commandment. And that is the fact that God loves us before we even do anything. He created us. He cares for us, died for us. There are so many ways that we can know and experience God's love in our lives. So we're going to look a little bit, we're going to dig a little deeper in the greatest commandment tonight. But before we do that, I want to pray for our time. God, we thank you that you are present with us in this space. God, I pray that all of us would be aware of you, that you would open our hearts and our minds to hear your word, to know your presence, to experience your love. I pray that the words of my mouth, the meditation of all of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight. In your holy name, amen. So what I want you to keep in mind is God's great love for us as we take a closer look at what Jesus says is the greatest commandment. Now, to give you some context, I really like history. I love context, and so I always kind of give, give that. Um, the world that Jesus was living in, he was raised as a Jew. He was an Israelite. And the Pharisees were a particular group um, that were obsessed with maintaining the purity of the Jewish belief system. They're really worried about that. And Jesus is going around and talking to people, and they were kind of questioning what he was doing and in interpreting scriptures. So um, the Pharisees were getting all riled up, and they wanted to catch Jesus in a lie. They wanted to, to catch him saying the wrong thing, um, and so they would ask him questions because they wanted to prove that Jesus wasn't who a lot of people were saying that he was which was the Messiah promised in the Old Testament. So that's what's going on in Matthew 22 um, that we're going to look at tonight, starting in verse 34. Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, and they were another group that were trying to chip, trip Jesus up, the Pharisees got together. One of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. Now, when we, we read this as Christians, we might not realize that Jesus didn't decide what the greatest commandment was. I grew up going to Sunday school, so I would always picture this, this scenario. The Pharisees are standing there, and Jesus is saying this, and their jaws drop. Their minds are blown, right? Jesus is like, that is the first and greatest commandment. Mic drop, walks off. <laughs> That's what I pictured in my head. But actually, Jesus is just quoting the Old Testament. He grew up a Jew, and so he would have known from birth the greatest commandment. He probably said it multiple days every single day of his life. And he would have known that the Pharisees did that as well, that they would have known um, what this commandment was. And so what Jesus is doing is he's connecting himself 
to the God of the Old Testament. He's connecting himself to the God that the Pharisees know. He's saying, I am legit. I'm not just a flash in the pan. My God is your God. I know what I'm talking about. Now, I love looking at the Old Testament. I know a lot of you might be like, ugh, it's just a bunch of books with weird long names. I mean, pretty much now it's like the hipster baby name book, but that's about it. I think, um, but I think if we would pay attention to the Old Testament, it would give us amazing insight as Christians. We would learn so much about who Jesus is and the fact that he was God. If we want to really know that, we have to be familiar with the Old Testament. I think it will help us relate to God more, our relationship with God more. So I'm going to geek out for a minute. And maybe this will help you understand a little bit more about who Jesus was. So one of the most important pieces of Hebrew scripture in ancient Judaism, and still one of the most important today, is from Deuteronomy chapter 6. And the book of Deuteronomy is essentially, um, it's a bunch of sermons that Moses, the guy who helped lead the Israelites out of Egypt, out of slavery, Moses preached... um, a bunch of sermons, they're about to go into the promised land, and he's like, here's how you should live your life. And Deuteronomy chapter 6 is also commonly known as the Shema. Shema is the Hebrew word or t- Hebrew word for to hear or listen. So let's take a look at Deuteronomy 6, and we'll see where Jesus is quoting from, starting in verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God The Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. Now, the Shema is the confession of the heart of the Israelite faith. This is the center of what it means to have faith in God. And they would repeat it morning and night. Six words in Hebrew. Shema Yisrael, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. If I were Jewish, I would sing that. You should be glad I'm not because you don't want to hear me sing it. But they actually will sing that. This is God claiming his people Israel, our God, the Lord, our God, right? The God of the universe has chosen them as his people. And that is what they're reminding themselves of. That is their identity. The God of the universe is one and he is their God. And the oneness of God is matched by the oneness of the devotion of the Israelites as they follow this one God. Now, when we read these words about what they're supposed to do, when it says, write it on your doorposts, on your hands and your forehead, we think of it figuratively. But Jewish tradition follows Moses' instructions literally. They'll roll up the words of the Shema, hear, O Israel, to put it in these little mezuzah scrolls, and they'll nail it on their doorposts. If you've been in a Jewish neighborhood, or we went to Israel a few years ago, every single hotel room had the Shema nailed to the doorpost. And then they'll put the Shema in these little leather boxes. They'll put them on their forehead and put them on their hands as they pray to God. 
So not only are people to keep these words in their heart, they're to talk about them in everyday life. They're to remind themselves and everyone around them, put them on their own bodies, that this makes a difference in their life. Now, this might seem weird, right? Little leather boxes, what? It might seem legalistic, but it's not. It's a reminder that the awesome God of the universe, and by awesome, I don't mean cool, I mean awe-inspiring God of the universe has chosen them as his people and loves them. It's understanding that when you live in a relationship with God, every situation we find ourselves in, we should remember the Shema and remember the Lord is your God and respond like people who believe it. That is what Jesus is quoting in the greatest commandment. Remember that God is your God. God loves you. Obedience begins with love. God loves us, loves us first, and it, it, it ends with love. We respond in love to a God that loves us. Now, when we talk about love, we never talk about the Old Testament, right? We don't think, we don't think that those things really go together. Well, I'm going to blow your mind right now. The book of Deuteronomy mentions love more than any other book in the New Testament. More than Matthew or Luke, more than Paul writes about it in Romans, more than 1 Corinthians, which has that whole passage everybody reads at weddings, right? That's all about love. Obedience, on the other hand, we think that's synonymous with the Old Testament, right? The Old Testament is just a bunch of laws, commands I have to follow. So when we look at something like Deuteronomy 6 that says, Hero Israel, and then it says, Love the Lord your God, we think, okay, I'm going to jump to the command. That's probably what it's going to tell me to do. What do I have to do to receive love? But Moses wants them to remember, hear, O Israel. To hear is critical. And what should we hear? The Lord your God. Moses is declaring to Israel, remember what God has done for you. He led you out of slavery in Egypt. He's about to lead you into the promised land. Remember what God has done for you, and then you will know that you are loved. You will know that God loves you. George Hinman, the pastor here at UPC, says the Shema is calling us to get so close to God that we can hear God's heartbeat, a heartbeat of love. And it's out of that that we are able to obey. A recent study in the Journal of Neonatal Medicine says about premature babies, they discovered what will increase their resilience when they're in an incubator above anything else, what will help them grow is a recording of their mother's heartbeat. It will give them strength. It will give them life. Jesus quotes Deuteronomy 6. He knows what he's doing. And he's reminding them, Hero Israel, the Lord your God. And he wants you to respond in love. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. So what are the next steps for us? What does that mean? What does it mean for us to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength? The idea of obedience is totally foreign, foreign to us as Americans, right? Because our culture says, well, I'm not going to obey. No one else is going to control me. I get to do what I want, when I want, right, wherever I want. And as Christians as well, we're like, I don't know. This obedience thing is confusing. And the question we usually ask is, okay, what do I need to do? What's the minimum I can do and still be a good Christian? What can I get away with? We want a checklist. 
And I would say most of us are of one of, one of two extremes when it comes to obedience. We either think, it doesn't really matter. I can kind of do whatever I want. I'm going to be forgiven anyways, right? This is a person who relies on what Dietrich Bonhoeffer calls cheap grace. There's zero investment. And on the other extreme, you have people who slip into legalism. They are so worried about everything that they have to do. What's right and what's wrong? What's good doctrine? What's bad doctrine? And they become so obsessed that the rules become their God. And those people are pointing fingers at everyone else and saying, God, look at them. Judge them. They're worse than I am. Both ends of the spectrum feel entitled to God's love. Cheap grace or earning God's love. When really what the Shema tells us is that our view of obedience shouldn't be, what's the right way to follow God? What we should do is draw close to God. And what can we do, right? What do we do to draw close to God? I will say, show up. Show up if you want to draw close to God, to hear God's heartbeat. Show up in a quiet time and open your Bible and read it. You will definitely discover the heart of God. Show up to your core group. Right There are so many times I have discovered God's heart by other people speaking into my life, studying scripture with them. Show up at a worship service. Don't let your first response be, I didn't really get anything out of it. And ask the question, God, what do you have for me here? Show up to serve. You will definitely discover the heart of God if you will show up. Maybe this analogy will help. Okay. Think of a field, all right, right, and it's full of sheep, and there's a shepherd in there as well. So there's a huge field, and there's tons of sheep in it, and there's, it's boundary. There's fence around the outside. And the shepherd loves all of these sheep. He loves them, and he tells them all the time. He tells them they are his prized possessions. He identifies with them. So some of these sheep, um, they've decided they're going to get as far away from the shepherd as possible. They'll turn around and they'll, they'll see him. I mean, he's way back there, but they'll, they'll know the shepherd is there, but they'll get as close to the boundary as they can. Now, these people might be kind of like asking the question, how far is too far with my boyfriend or girlfriend, right? Can I go this far and still be within the boundaries of the shepherd? How about now? Can I go this far? These are what we might call the rebel sheep, you know, like those guys. <laughs> Maybe they get a goat tattoo, I don't know. But they often, they find themselves in these really precarious situations. And they look back at the shepherd and they don't really know what to do. And what happens most of the time is that they end up stumbling around, not really knowing what to do. So some of the sheep are straining themselves beyond belief to get noticed by the shepherd. They are trying to be the most loved sheep in the field. They're demonstrating amazing things, you know, posing, doing cheap backflips. I don't really know what that looks like. They're doing a lot of yelling to the shepherd, check me out, I'm great, right? Everyone else is bad. <laughs> you guys, you guys, I got a million of them. But it's like people who are trying to do everything perfectly. And their, own, their fear of failure is what they're most worried about. Shepherd, look at me. I'm the best. I'm perfect. I'm doing it perfectly. And finally, there's a third group of sheep. 
And they are all trying to get next to the shepherd. They are following him around, basking in his love and the reality that they belong to him. Now, when the shepherd speaks and he tells them that he loves them and he tells them, he gives them directions and he tells them how to live, which of these sheep are going to hear what the shepherd has to say? Which of these sheep are going to be close enough and quiet enough to hear the heartbeat of the shepherd? If your response to God's love is to test how far away you can get, you will never truly know God's love and you'll never be able to do anything close to obedience. If your response to God's love is to identify so closely that you obsess about what is right and what is wrong, I know the right theology, that means that God loves me the best, you're never gonna truly know God's love because the rules are your God. We are obedient because God loves us, not so that God loves us. You're obedient because God loves you, not so that God will love you. How can God's love be seen in your life? Is it so obvious it's practically written on your hands and on your forehead? When people walk through your door, do they see it's obvious that this person believes that God loves them and that they love God? Is God's love in the words that come, come out of your mouth? Is God's love in how you spend your time? Is God's love in the thoughts you have when you notice another person, seeing them as an object or judging them for how they think or how they act? Take an inventory. Where is God's love missing in your life? Where do you need to draw close to God so that you might hear God's heartbeat? My story is a little different from Ryan's. Over the last couple of weeks, you've been able to hear Ryan's story and how he discovered God's love in his life. And while Ryan engaged in garden variety fraternal hedonism, <laughs> his words, I behaved perfectly. Perfectly. I was a perfect kid. I, got, I had perfect behavior, perfect for my parents, for my teachers. I got perfect grades. I had perfect hair as well. There I am, eighth grade. <laughs> Spiral perm will do so much for you. And I had perfect clothes. I think I had green jeans that I wore with that. And it's crazy that colored jeans have come back. You know you're old when what you wore in junior high is back around again. So my growing up was about being perfect for everyone else, including God. I also discovered what do I need to do to be the perfect Christian. And I had an arrangement. I will do everything right, and God will love me. And that worked out really well for a long time. Most of my life, throughout high school, college, working after college, it was great. Thank God was in, I thought God's, on, God's in on this deal. And then I was in graduate school. I was living in New Jersey. And all of a sudden, this arrangement kind of stopped working. I started to crack a little bit. This perfect facade that I had created and I had lived under and I didn't even really know was true started to break. I was incredibly lonely living across the country. This, rela this relationship I was in, it was terrible, it ended. One of my closest friends was killed in a car accident and everything just started falling apart, it was crumbling. And I stopped doing my schoolwork, had to take a couple incompletes in my classes. I didn't leave my room. I stopped showing up for my job. I went from being perfect to being pathetic. And 
I was a slave to perfectionism and I was discovering in these cracks that who I really was was a self-loathing, failure-fearing loser who didn't deserve God's love. And that's how I saw myself. I knew that was the truth. And I was like, what the what, God? Right? We had an arrangement. What is happening? I don't know what to do. And I was scrambling, trying to figure out what to do. Everything I thought I knew was gone. And I had some friends coming around me in community. And I remember reading at that time a book. It was from the author and youth pastor, Mike Iaconelli. And I feel like God was speaking directly to me. Here's what he wrote. I finally heard what God had been trying to communicate to me. Michael, I am here. I have been calling you, but you haven't been listening. Can you hear me? I love you. I have always loved you, and I have been waiting for you to hear me say that to you. But you have been so busy trying to prove to yourself you are loved that you have not heard me. I was me. I was so busy trying to prove to myself that I was loved that I never heard God tell me that he loved me. I totally misunderstood the Christian faith in obedience. I came to see that it was in my brokenness, in my powerlessness, in my failure that Jesus was made strong, and that's what made me strong. I realized God wanted me to be so filled with his love, there was nothing I could do but respond in obedience because he loved me, not so that he would love me. What has this meant for my life? Honestly, if you looked at a roadmap of my life, it would look pretty much the same, except there's been quite a few failures since then, which I don't really care about as much anymore. But I can only tell you that it feels very different. I can tell you that at that moment, for the first time in my life, in my mid-20s, I remember knowing that Jesus was saying to me, Janie, I love you. You are beloved. And that's all I've really needed to know. If the love of God is revealed in six simple Hebrew words, how much more is it revealed to us in Jesus Christ? Jesus Christ is bound to us in covenant love. And I think for us in 2012, how do we understand this idea of covenant love? Marriage is probably the best way, but I hesitate to use that as an example in a room full of married people. But the one thing I think we can understand about marriage is that property of the husband becomes the wife and vice versa. And when we enter into relationship with Jesus, we are bound to him. Our soul is bound to Jesus in one flesh. And what is Jesus? Jesus' property becomes ours. And what is ours becomes his. So that means our sin, our judgment, our disobedience, our selfishness, our death, that becomes the property of Jesus. And what is his becomes ours, right? Him who loves us, his life, his obedience, his righteousness, his affirmation, his compassion, those become ours. In a relationship of covenant love that God wants us to know. When we know we are beloved, that is when we can love. Listen, hear the heartbeat of God, and awaken to that love in your life. Gracious God, we thank you that you are a God of covenantal love, that you are a God who has entered into relationship with us, relationship we don't deserve, relationship we can't control, but relationship that you want us to know, one that is full 
of your grace and your love and your forgiveness in your reality in our lives, God. Help us draw close to you so that we can share your love with this world that needs it. In your holy name, amen.